Hi there. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to season two of the Let's Talk Sim podcast, brought to you by Anaxel, where we interview some of the brightest minds in simulation to discuss new methodologies, the current and future state of the discipline, learning resources, and inspiring stories. Anaxel is dedicated to advancing the science of healthcare simulation, and this podcast is an extension of our passion for simulation. I'm your host, Kyle Johnson, and I'm an associate professor and the associate dean for simulation at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing and a member of the Anaxel Education Committee. Welcome, everybody, to Let's Talk Sim Season 2. I'm so excited that you're here. Today, I have an exciting guest to introduce to you. If you are in advanced practice, if you have a nurse practitioner background, today is your day. We are focusing on content specific to your area of expertise. And so I'm excited to welcome Dr. Sarah L. Beebe. She is a scholar and educator transforming interprofessional and nursing education. Sarah is known for her teaching innovations and research and simulation for nearly the past decade in the academic and hospital setting and is a certified healthcare simulation educator. She has devoted most of her current research to advanced practice nursing simulation in the use of virtual technology, creating hybrid simulated experiences. Her clinical background is in women's health and maternity as a nurse midwife and a women's health nurse practitioner with a focus on out of hospital birth. She is currently the graduate medical education simulation lab program manager at Bay Health Medical Center in Delaware. Welcome, Sarah, and let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what your current role is, and what you find yourself doing in simulation in your current role. Sure, thank you. Um, I, I'm excited to be here. Um, so as you said in my intro, my, uh, my background is in women's health nursing. Um, I was a labor and delivery nurse for a number of years, and then a nurse midwife and a women's health NP. And then I went into academia in 2014, working for University of Delaware in their school of nursing. And um, that's where I started teaching in simulation um, and really learning the standards and the evidence and that there, that there truly is a lot of evidence and, and wonderful ways to do simulation in a safe way. I got my PhD from uh, George Washington University, um, actually as their first PhD nursing graduate um, last year in 2022, and then took the role that I currently have um, here at a hospital. I'm in a two hospital community health system in central and southern Delaware. I know we're small, but we do have a southern part and a northern part of the state. <laughs> um, and, um, and my hospital is Bay Health Medical Center. Um, and I run the PCOM Simulation Center at Bay Health, which is a 10,000 square foot space that was literally just built and started in summer 2022. Um, and I work with both physicians and nurses. Um, so it's a bit of a horse of a different color for me, uh, from academia back to hospital. Um, but I am still continuing with a number of the research teams that I was on while I was at GW including the team that I did my dissertation with. Um, and I'm starting to build um, kind of a research base here at the hospital, um, kind of from a different perspective now. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Well, you, uh, so let's just add on a little bit about your PhD. Um, talk to us a little bit about your PhD. Um, you, you received some national funding for this line of research. Tell us, tell us about your program of research. 
Sure. So um, my dissertation was on using screen-based simulation, so virtual simulation that you would do on a computer, um, to look at factors associated with diagnostic reasoning in uh, family nurse practitioner students nearing graduation. Um, it was a small study that was embedded within a larger simulation study that had been funded by the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, so as NCSBN. Um, my study did receive um, a little bit of funding. Um, I got the NLN ENRS dissertation award. Um, and so that helped to fund dissemination and some um, some other, you know, smaller pieces of, of my individual study. Um, the larger study is just finishing up, actually. It's still in data collection, um, and it's under the direction of Dr. Angie McNeilis and Dr. Chris Dreikhurst. Um, and in that study, um, we have replaced the last 70 hours of direct clinical hours in an FNP program with screen-based simulation um, for students that have reached the required 500 clinical hours. So they're still doing 500 hours, but then those mm -hmm. extra hours that most programs do, um, we're replacing that with screen-based simulation. And my dissertation kind of carved out a, a little niche in that. Um, and I did a quasi-experimental one-group study that used the data from our simulation platform um, that it was an efficiency score. So it was a diagnostic reasoning score. Um, and then also scores um, from a knowledge-based pre and post study exam, um, and also self-reported metacognitive awareness scores. So looking at personal metacognition. Um, and we looked at that, or I looked at the relationships between all of those factors and to see how they were related. Um, and although my study has not been officially published yet, um, so I don't want to give too many conclusions away, but um, I will say that diagnostic reasoning um, measured by those efficiency scores, knowledge and metacognitive awareness all improved with screen-based simulation. Um, and so we finish up data collection for the larger study actually this semester. And I'm really excited to see kind of what that larger study um, finds. Um, but it seems the, the anecdotal evidence that we're getting from our learners over the past couple of years have been that this was a really quality experience, unlike what they're getting in the direct patient care clinical um, because they get so much more time to really focus on each patient case and also the opportunity to be able to debrief and get feedback on, um, on each of those patient cases, which you just don't have as much time for in um, the traditional clinical setting. That sounds extremely exciting. Well, so everybody that's listening here, be watching out for Sarah Beebe's research that will be published, we know, very soon, I would anticipate, um, down the road. So be watching for that. I have, I want to ask you a question just a little bit, because, so you mentioned the National Council State Boards of Nursing um, as a funding opportunity. You also mentioned NLN ENRS, which I believe that's National League for Nursing, Eastern Nursing Research Society. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. So, you know, I anticipate that some of our listeners are doctoral students um, or they are nurse practitioners looking to potentially fund some of their research. Could you talk to us just for a little bit about what funding opportunities existed, difficulties that you encountered, opportunities for funding um, just to that audience um, for, for what to look at and what to expect in the process? 
Sure. So um, funding educational research is tough. <laughs> and so, um, and I think all educa educational researchers really do find that, um, you know, it's hard to explain to some of the major funding um, organizations and foundations and things like that, that, you know, educational research is really the foundation that we need to be able to do all the other, you know, kind of sexy research, you know, cancer research yeah. or whatever it is, you've got to have the, um, you've got to have the researchers, you've got to have those nurses and they've got to be adequately prepared to be able to do some of the other stuff. And, um, and that's, that's hard to explain um, to, to people who are funding, but, but there is educational uh, research funding out there. Um, you know, for dissertation research, a number of the educational organizations have small, you know, small grants like NLN has grants. Some of the simulation organizations have grants. And then also some of your like local organizations. I know people that got funding from their local Sigma chapter or, you know, from chapter, from different groups like that. I, um, I went to GW and um, my education was funded by um, George Washington University. So that was nice to have that mm. piece of financial burden out of the way so that I could afford to do some of my study, you know, on my own dime um, because I wasn't also paying for, um, for my education. And I think that that's an important piece when you're a dissert, when you're um, a PhD student, um, you know, we're so used to paying for our education in at the undergrad level and the graduate level. But when you get to that PhD level, there is a lot of funding. A lot of schools fund their PhD students' um, education. And so then it frees you up to be able to do that research, you know, on your own potentially, um, or to only use smaller um, funding sources. And I'm speaking mainly to educational research. There's quite a bit of funding for other areas of research for a PhD student. Um, you know, out there, but that's, um, that's not always an option for educational researchers. Yeah. I will also say that one thing that I've told other PhD students is that it was really helpful to connect with another researcher who is doing work in my field of interest. So I connected with um, Dr. McNeilis very early on um, in my program. I was a graduate research assistant and I worked with her and she was starting a study on this um, study that I did that was funded. And I found that I could find a niche within that study to be able to do work that was meaningful to me. Maybe it wasn't what I went to PhD school to study, but to be perfectly honest, I don't know that I knew exactly what I wanted to study as I was entering the program. Um, but this set me up with a study that already had IRB approval, already had some funding, that we could recruit from a larger pool because it was a larger study. Um, and so then I could focus on the, you know, the specific methods and um, things that I needed to do to get the data that I needed without having to take the time, you know, the long period of time that it often takes to get IRB approval on your own or to recruit as an individual. And so, so I've told a number of my classmates that kind of were coming up behind me that, hey, if you can find somebody that's doing work that you can connect with and collaborate with, um, not only are you getting that mentoring, but then also it does 
help facilitate that dissertation study. Um, you know, we always make the comment that a done dissertation is a good dissertation. Um, mm -hmm. Your dissertation work doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the most profound work. It needs to be quality, um, but it doesn't need to be your life's work. Um, that's what you yeah. have your life's work for. And so that was really helpful that I was able to find a study that I could connect with and be able to get work out of. And that was, you know, related and all of that. So that's what I have, that has been the biggest piece of advice that I can give to a PhD student for novice educational researchers. There's even more funding. So I found that there were a number of funding sources from Axel, from SSH, from, you know, the simulation organizations, and then also NLN for novice um, educational researchers, so new educational researchers that have just come out of their PhD program and want to start their program of research with a higher dollar amount on it. Um, and so that's certainly an opportunity for new researchers as well. Yeah, gosh, if you were in the doctoral program right now, I can't I can't explain enough how great this advice was. You know, when I was just just thinking a little bit, when I was in my uh, in the process of getting it into a PhD program as well, something that continually mentioned to me was the match, right? And I think you're what you're talking about right there is that match where you can find somebody who's doing some work in an area that's meaningful to you. And I think those words that you just said are so powerful. If you can find a faculty member that's doing some work that's meaningful to you and somehow tack on to the work that they're doing it makes for a really exciting phd journey um yeah there's there are days that are tough um and and the research is is you know the research process is difficult at times but when you have somebody that's really doing that work and you have that match uh it makes it it makes it really meaningful so thanks for sharing that um all right let's shift back uh, APR in education. What do you see happening in APR in education uh, using SIM across the country? So I will say that um, I feel like before I can say that, I have to kind of explain what simulation looks like in APR in education. And so, you know, for those of us who have taught in the pre licensure level, we know that we use simulation to train in different um, skills. They might do a few scenarios where they experience taking care of a patient and um, maybe calling a doctor or a, or a provider or something like that. Um, but simulation in, at the pre-licensure level is um, able to replace some of um, our clinical uh, hours, in fact, up to 50%, depending on where you're located. And in APRN education, we haven't made all of the same policy changes. We also don't have a ton of evidence. At the pre-licensure pre level, there's a lot of evidence to support, support simulation. Um, and um, there was the national simulation study that replaced, uh, that was an NCSBN funded study, that, that that's the study that found that we could replace up to 50% of clinical hours with simulation. We have not done that in APRN education. And so we're working towards getting some of that evidence. And so that being said, um, we can't replace uh, direct care clinical hours with um, with simulation at this point. And 
it, it can be uh, difficult for educators to find enough quality uh, experiences for their students to feel like they meet all the requirements of graduation. Um, and so simulation is being used for skill-based training, so learning different procedures, because once you get to the provider level, there are uh, procedures that you're learning that are part of your new scope of practice. They use simulation to expand that critical thinking that you develop as a nurse, but you're now thinking at the diagnostic reasoning level. So you're diagnosing an issue and um, you are looking at, uh, you know, different symptoms and trying to figure out differential diagnoses and, and come to a diagnosis and then ultimately a treatment plan and evaluating that treatment plan. And so simulation is used in that way. Um, and then also simulation is being used uh, for communication. So different, um, you know, patient scenarios where you maybe have to give difficult news as a provider, not no longer as the bedside nurse. And so really it's, practicing that role transition from the bedside nurse to, um, to the provider in the room. And, um, you know, in recent years, uh, much like medical education, simulation is being used to evaluate learners. So, you know, the simulation setting and the simulated setting is being used to do OSCEs, which is a, an evaluation. It can often be a summative evaluation of, um, of graduate nurse uh, students to see how they interact with a patient, how they do their assessments, how they, um, how they ask questions, things like that. Um, and that's been being done in medical education and we have added it in graduate um, education and nursing as well. That is not necessarily scenario-based simulation, but you're still using simulated uh, participants or simulated patients, and you are often in a simulated setting. So I like to clump that in with simulation in APRN education. And it's something that's very different than what you might see in a pre-licensure program. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for simulation and APRN education in in person and then also using the technology that's available to us. So in the study that I'm currently a part of, we're using screen-based simulation. Um, so our students are completely remote, they're asynchronous, um, and they are doing simulated patient cases on their computers. And then we meet as a group all on Zoom or on a uh, web conferencing platform to be able to debrief those cases and really dive in and discuss those cases, um, much like you would do if you were meeting in person. Um, but having that technology, we now can do simulation without having to come to campus. Um, granted, you're not getting those psychomotor skills, you're not getting that hands-on experience, but, um, but the processes that you need, those diagnostic processes and um, working through a patient case as a provider, that can all be done virtually. And then we also have virtual, uh, we have um, virtual reality and augmented reality that have um, cases that are being used in the APRN space um, where maybe you are getting some of those psychomotor skills because you've got immersive goggles on and you're able to, um, and you've got you know, hand controllers that you're able to actually work through a case and maybe get some of that psychomotor function um, even in a virtual um, space. Uh, so, you know, 
that's where we're going and, or, you know, that's what we're starting to see in APRN education. And, um, you know, there's really a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Wow. There is, there is a lot of opportunity there. What about any other challenges that you're finding that, uh, I mean, it seems like that one major piece of evidence that the pre-licensure program has had to, to, you know, substitute up to 50%, um, which again, you know, even in the pre-licensure aspect, we see some states adopting that as opposed to other states that have, have you know, have, have decided to either not address that up front just yet or, or you know, substitute a different percentage. Um, are there other challenges that you're coming across in APRN programs uh, as well? Yeah, so the, the biggest challenge is um, the requirements on clinical hours. So currently, in order to sit for a certification exam, you have to have um, 500 hours of direct patient clinical, and none of that can be in simulation. The NTF, or the National Task Force, has just recommended that um, learners have 750 direct patient clinical hours. That hasn't been put completely into practice yet because the certification board or certification exams are still at that 500 hours. There's been discussion of going up all the way to a thousand hours of direct patient clinical. Um, and, you know, it's hard to figure out where simulation fits in there. And that conversation can get kind of heated and can, it's a really difficult conversation to have because we, we know that in-person clinical has its place and has its benefit. Um, but we also have evidence to show us that maybe we don't know enough about direct patient clinical, and we certainly don't know enough about simulation to and where it fits in APRN education to be able to make strong policies that have teeth in them. Um, you know, there have been studies. Um, there was a study in 2017 by Fulton and a group that found that approximately only 30% of NP clinical hours were spent in direct patient care. So they followed around uh, learners or they had learners, you know, document what they were doing during their direct patient care clinicals. And only 30% of those of that time was actually spent with patients. A lot of that time was spent looking things up, documenting, hanging out, out waiting for patients, you know, all of those things. And then um, I was on a study with Dr. McNeilis and Dr. Dreyfus uh, a few years ago where uh, we interviewed or we surveyed close to 4,000 FNP students that were getting ready to graduate and asked them specifically about what kind of experiences they got during their clinical uh, rotations. And there were a number of experiences that they maybe only did one time or they never did. And it was an expectation of graduation that, um, you know, for example, we expect that all FNP students have done a um, psychological mental health assessment on patients across the lifespan. So pediatrics, adult and gerontology. And we found that there were a number of people who had never done a psych mental health assessment on a child or somebody under the wow. age of 18. Yeah. Um, and same thing in that geriatric population. And so we found these major gaps in traditional clinical. And granted, we all know people who had very quality clinical sites and wonderful preceptors, 
but there's a lot of variability in the quality of your clinical site and what you're able to achieve with your preceptor, even with an excellent preceptor. Sometimes you just don't get the experiences that you need. Um, and so the great thing about simulation is that it can fill those gaps. And so that's one thing that we yeah. did in the current study that we're in. We were filling those gaps that we found with that earlier study with simulation. It's prescribed. We know that you're going to get a pediatric mental health assessment in a simulation about that. Um, yeah. And so, so, you know, looking at simulation, it really doesn't have to be all or nothing like, oh, we're going to be all in simulation or we're going to be all in the clinical setting. There's a way to augment that in-person clinical with simulation and vice versa. And, um, but that is the big challenge is knowing where, you know, how many hours are okay. And at what point are we taking away from direct patient care or at what point are we taking away from simulation, you know, like finding that balance. Um, and then also finding quality educators. Um, you know, we, simulation takes a lot of work on the educator and so does clinical. So finding preceptors, but then also finding educators that can provide quality simulation. I think we've all had a conversation with, um, you know, with people about simulation that they might have a little bit of PTSD about the simulation that they experienced as learners. Yeah. I know I had that. Um, and so getting that buy-in, that simulation done using standards, the Anaxel standards, using facilitators that truly know how to debrief and know how to design a, a quality simulation, um, you know, that doing simulation in that way is very different than maybe the simulation we remember from, from our education. And, um, and so, you know, that's a big gap and a big challenge um, in APRN education as well. Yeah. Wow. You've hit on some really good things there. So stay, you started kind of talking. So stay with me on big vision. Where do you see, you know, you've talked about what's been happening and what the challenges are. So think forward and get visionary with me for a little bit. Where do you think simulation can make the biggest impact in APRN education? And where do you see it going? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot. And um, now that I work in the hospital setting and, um, and I'm out of academia for a little while, you know, I see this major practice gap that we have. Um, it's not just APRNs. It's not just pre-licensure. I see it with the physicians too. And, um, yeah. you know, what we teach in nursing school how does that translate to real practice? And how do we bridge that gap? How do we, you know, we've got learners who may never touch the EMR as a provider when they're in, when they're in school or may never get to do particular procedures on a real patient because maybe there just aren't a lot of opportunities. You know, like how many times do you, remove a toenail or how many times do you, mm -hmm. you know, get to have an abscess or something like that, you know, that is where simulation, I believe can really bridge that gap so that we are preparing learners 
hit the ground running as a new provider. I see simulation working on the academic side, and I also see simulation working on the practice side, you know, and what I think would be so amazing, we talk about um, academic practice partnerships in um, from a clinical perspective um, and from a research perspective that, you know, we've got people that maybe work in both academia and practice um, and share their time, or we've got academic you know, practices where we can send our students to take care of patients, but all of the um, people working in that practice are faculty. I believe that we could have academic practice partnerships from a simulation perspective, like mm, that yeah. we could prepare learners on the academic side that we know when they go to the practice side, they're, they're going to continue simulation and practice using the same methods and using the same ideas and things like that. So, you know, at the academic, on the academic side, they're starting the simulation that's gonna prepare them for boards, but then once they're done with that part, continuing those simulations and that, and those methods that help them in practice, you know, much like they do in aviation. You know, you practice in school, but then once you're out, and you're a real pilot, you're still doing thousands of hours of simulation. And yep. there should be no reason why we're not doing that on that side, preparing them academic, you know, preparing them in the academic setting for all the practice that they're going to continue doing for the rest of their careers. So I think that that's, I, I see that and, and being now on the practice side and seeing the opportunities that we could have um, is really cool. Um, I think technology is going to play a really big part in that. Um, I don't think that we are going to get rid of sim centers. Um, I think that sim centers with mannequins and, um, and you know, uh, patients and all of those things are going to, I think that they're here to stay, but I think that we're going to find there are a lot of things that we can augment with VR, AR, screen-based simulation. Um, I think there are going to be things that we can replace with those um, modalities um, that require less educator work. But then when we do come together in person, it's a more meaningful um, you know, experience. Um, and um, you know, I, I really think that, um, yeah, that, that we have a lot of research that can be done in this space and a lot of, we, we have just scratched the surface of how we're going to use simulation in healthcare and especially in APRN education. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing about your, your background, your research, where you see your research going, um, and just giving us some insight into what's happening, uh, in APRN education. Uh, I mean, the work you're doing is wonderful. Uh, you know, I've had the privilege of working with you now for about a year and a half or so. And so I knew that you you have a wealth of expertise around this area. And so thanks for sharing it with our simulation community today on the podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Um, thanks for sharing about APR and education. Thanks for sharing about challenges that you encountered as a doctoral student. Uh, you shared a little bit about your research today with us, but it's forthcoming. Where can we, where can our community keep in contact with you on social media? 
So I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, my handle okay. for both is at SimSarahB, and I'm Sarah with an H. So S-I-M-S-A-R-A-H-B, as in B-D. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Uh, well, Sim community, follow her on social media. Watch for this research coming out in a simulation journal or education journal in the very near future. And for those of you that are pursuing APR in education, it sounds like we've just scratched the surface. So there's a lot left to be done. So the opportunity for future integration of simulation and APR in education is ripe. And, um, and so I hope something perhaps inspired you today to continue that line of research, continue that line of what you're already doing. Uh, and, and thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Talk Sim. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it on social media or leaving us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. All of these things help support this podcast. Visit anaxle.org to learn more about Anaxle, how to get more involved in simulation, and gain access to Anaxle's member offerings. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a second of the latest developments in simulation. See you next time.